Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your co-host along with our co-host and my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, Pops? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm doing pretty good. This is take two, by the way. We had a blackout, so we uh, we, d- we already did this part of the show, but uh, we're doing it again. And uh, shout out to my friend, Kristen Drew, who's our, co- our co-producer. And by the way, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Now, you might have heard the name Ryan Meeks a few years ago as the pastor of a huge church who had the audacity to say that gay people would be welcome as part of East Lakes church community. And it was very scandalous in the Christian community. But uh, in all seriousness, to focus on the church's version of a TMZ's headline is really not doing Ryan justice. Ryan was founder, curator, and leader of Eastlake until fairly recently after leading a very different evolutionary transformative church community for 16 years. Now, one can simply say Ryan's life work is to help people feel alive. And having endured everything from the scrutiny of the entire American evangelical movement to beating cancer, that simple yet profound raison d'etre to help people feel alive is quite substantive. And the more I've learned about today's guest, the more depth and substance there is. Ryan Meeks, thank you for joining us. How are you? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Excited to be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Um, so why don't we, uh, just to draw some context here, why don't, could you give us a little sense of your background? You were a, a pastor's kid. You grew up in the church. Yeah. Yeah, my father was a, a minister in a, a little backwater denomination that's called Foursquare, which is connected to the Pentecostal side of evangelical Christianity. And um, it was also a megachurch. When I was a, about six months old, my dad moved to, up to the Northwest to help plant this church from scratch with a team from uh, Eugene, Oregon, kind of came out of that uh, whole Jesus sandals, hippie church movement <laughs> stuff. Yeah, essentially, that became one of the early mega churches in the late 70s, early 80s. And that's the church that I grew up in. So it was like, you know, back then it was really edgy to have like drums and electric guitar or whatever. And they were fighting some of the culture wars in those days. And then I sort of got to watch this rapid expansion of a, of a church um, as a young kid and watch my dad develop as a leader. So for the most part, it was a really positive experience. The, the church gave me a, a community to lean on and, and a narrative to live inside of, a, a meaning system that helped me navigate the slings and arrows of, of uh, growing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Experience for the most part. Now, one doesn't have to look too far to know that you've gone through quite a evolution and transformation yourself on your spiritual journey. 
Yeah. Was there ever a point when you felt pretty sure about most of the basics or, or were, were you always sort of um, more of a, a truth seeker that's like surfing the waves of what, you know, what, what became apparent to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that like most people, as I developed through, you know, stages of awareness and, or stages of faith to use Fowler's term, or even just childhood development, you know, at, the younger I was, the more certain that I, at least that my parents had the truth and the church had the truth. And so I was just sort of collecting agreements with these authority figures, whether they're my parents or my youth pastors or, or the institution itself of the church. And then as I got um, probably to my early teens, you know, junior high, high school, that's when I sort of fell deeply into my own spirituality in the, in the sense of I was owning it uh, from a passion and energy perspective, but I was very much doing it within the confines or the, uh, within the fence line of the tradition I was raised in. So I wasn't really pushing the edges within my tribal awareness, but I was owning it from an energetic perspective. What I mean is like, I, I was personally taking my own time to go deeper into what I would have called the faith at the, at that point. Yeah. Right. And did you end up going to like Bible college, seminary, all that yep. stuff? Where, where did you, where'd you go? So I went to, <laughs> they don't want to be associated with me, but I went, uh, there's a assembly of God a school in the Northwest called Northwest university. And I went there for a short bit and really had a hard a hard time. Cause at that point I was already married with one child and I was asking way too many questions <laughs> for my Bible teachers. And I did well, I got good grades. I was on the Dean's list, but I learned really quickly that what the preferred model of student was someone who was learning the company line, not somebody who was constantly playing devil's advocate or asking from a different angle. And I mean, I was really seeking at that point, trying to trying to ground my spirituality in something that didn't make me feel like I had to assassinate my mind to buy into. There was so much presupposition in the teaching that I wasn't already on board with. And so that was both frustrating for myself because I'm paying money and being told we don't have time for this. Right. And, and uh, it's frustrating for them because the rest of the class was ready to move on. You know, they were like, you know, yep, right on. The Bible says it, that settles it kind of a thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, we still haven't addressed why we should place all this authority here. And primarily it wasn't because I was trying to push against it. It's because I was actually friends with people who were not Christians. Right. <laughs> and so I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't make any sense unless you're on the inside friends. Like I'm here to learn how to share the gospel with people who don't buy into this uh, worldview at the beginning. And so we need to go backwards and start by building a logic that's going to make sense to other people. And this really wasn't what they were selling. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't stay long. And then I'd taken some, you know, institute classes and some seminarians who had done like, or not seminary teachers who had done institutes at churches. You know what I'm talking about? Various churches will set up their own courses and institutes. And I'd done a number of those hodgepodge together, yeah. but never finished. Ultimately ended up spending most of my time apprenticing at, at different churches, eventually my father's church in um, San Diego. Okay. Well, I moved down there 
uh, I want to say in 1999 or 2000, I can't remember which. And um, the whole point was, I want to go down there and learn and apprentice under someone who will actually give me access so I can get all the way into this thing, learn everything I can and go back and plant a church someday in the Northwest. So that's what I did. Which you ultimately did, I think in 2005. But uh, before before we get into Eastlake, yeah. um, you're, you're not the first person who's come on to uh, talk of politics and religion to share something very similar to that. Uh, recently, we talked to a good friend of mine, uh, Samir Yadav, who's okay. a prof up at Westmont. And he did uh, undergrad at uh, Masters College, or now Masters University, described a lot of the same thing as he started diving into some of the coursework there. Uh, excuse me, Masters for his first for his uh, first master's degree, not his undergrad. Gotcha. Um, he, he had a habit of reading the source material and then reading the references, you know, yeah. the, the reading the material that was referenced in the source material. And yeah. he would come with other questions and it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's not what we do here. We don't actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, look exactly. into stuff and question and grapple. And no, yeah. here are the answers. And he's recently actually wrote an essay, something along the lines of the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Yeah. Um, what, what What is that? Is that like a cultural thing? Is that a colonial thing? Is that like what? What are the ingredients? Because that's just not a very unique experience for someone uh, yeah. to enter a church or a school to be like, no, dude, you're asking way too many questions. Yeah, well, part, there's a number of layers. That, and by the way, I look at it, you know, one is it's a it's a Western assembly model of education. That is partly the problem. You know, you have an assembly line plug in the material and get them out the door. We're not being taught how to think we're being taught what to think. Mm. And that's a very different reality. I mean, today we're not even teaching kids civics anymore. And I'm sure that's something you're talking about in this podcast, this, this lack of awareness of how our government actually functions by uh, just regular citizens. People don't, there we're so distanced from that stuff because we're not even taught that in public schools. So that's, that's one part of the problem is the assembly line model of education that the West has certainly um, bought into. The other complexity here is evangelicalism. I mean, it's fundamentalism. So <laughs> that's how you teach fundamentalism. You tell them this is what you have to believe. And if you don't believe this, you're in threat of going to hell. So let's just keep cycling in this, I don't know, this, this uh, performative contradiction that really doesn't stand on anything substantive. It's just, you have to think this. So you have to think this. And, you know, that's going to frustrate anyone who wants to stretch their mind and exercise their brain. And so I, have a, I have a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you went after all of your apprenticeships yeah. and you went to the Northwest to plant a church. Yeah. Was your concept of a church an evangelical Christian church? Yes, absolutely. I was sold out. Yeah. So in other words, this evolution uh, from accepting the fundamental truths and spreading them as opposed to questioning mm -hmm. what's behind those truths, that's something that happened to you after you planted this church. Correct. So what was happening to me when I'm in these Bible classes is something that's innate to who I am was coming up. I was questioning these things. I felt like the freedom and the desire to do those things. As I got further into the machine, I realized that I was good 
at leading, organizing, you know, all of the skill sets that are good for basically CEO business model megachurch world. And so the questions and the personal pursuit of truth was less. I was just in a stage of life in my early 20s, which was about building. I wasn't so much flipping back into some sort of contemplative posture at that stage of my life. Working for my dad, I had two kids at that point. I now have four. But at that point, it's just that stage of life had changed. Instead of being that sort of young college kid who's asking questions and wrestling with the world, I was in an early young married family stage, which is about stability and structure. And so at that point, you know, the consciousness of such a person isn't really in that same space that that single college mind is at. And for me, as you just pointed out, that came back online later, probably closer to when I uh, turned 30 was when it really started to crank. Some other version of the hounds of heaven, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> So it sounds like at a certain point, maybe around 2010, you had started to have this yeah. uh, awakening. But by that yeah. time, I mean, Eastlake was pretty well established. That's got to be yeah. pretty world rocking, you know, to, to, to reckon with the possibility that a lot of your fundamental beliefs are bullshit. Uh, but I have however many souls that you were leading at that time. That's got to be pretty, yeah. pretty scary. It was very scary. And I certainly wasn't at a place that in 2010 where I would have called any of it bullshit. I, I was, uh, I was um, a dark night of the soul that had begun. Um, and it was only starting because the church had been so successful. And I finally had the staffing and the support and the finances and a facility where I wasn't doing the busy work of an entrepreneurial startup anymore. I was running a large organization. And because of that, I could start asking questions again and I could take a deep breath and sit down and go, what do I want to say? You know, I had been teaching my dad's sermons and my mentor's sermons and all these other mega church pastor guys who gave me their resources and like, look, you don't have time for, you know, sermon writing. Just use these outlines, you know, write your own jokes and stories. And and uh, it was great. It was, I felt so supported and loved by that community. But by the time we were large enough and I had the space and time, I could finally go, you know what, what do I want to say? And I was at a different stage in life where I was back to asking those questions because I'd already sort of arrived. It, the church was way bigger than I ever dreamed it would ever get. And we were only a few years in. So here I was at the top of, you know, at least one of the ladders that I decided to climb and was like, I, there's got to be more like there has to be. I don't feel as close to God as I feel like I should at this point. Like I'm doing all this stuff. We're seeing all this radical transformation. Beautiful things are happening in people's lives. And yet I didn't feel any closer to God. And that's been a theme in my whole life. I remember even in junior high in my Pentecostal youth group, feeling like everyone else had God talk to them and visions and dreams. And, and I, it never happened to me. I always felt sort of like a junior varsity Christian my whole life, but I was committed to what I believed was a, a healthy pathway for living well on earth with others and with God. And the question of God wasn't even a question to me at, the, at that point, or even up until 2010, I, I assumed the reality of God. And what I was trying to do was figure out what that meant within this Christian framework and how I could explain that in a way that both 
felt authentic to what I was experiencing in my own version of following Jesus and something that I could communicate because that's another part of my wiring. I just am someone who will communicate what I'm learning and experiencing for the benefit of others. And I wasn't feeling like I could do that authentically anymore. And that's what started me down the road of asking the deeper question and go, well, 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 if this, then what about this? And then if that, well, what about that? And much like your friend, I mean, I think I started reading books I wasn't supposed to be reading. And then I bibliographied my way through those books into a whole bunch of other books I wasn't supposed to read until I'm into, you know, Buddhist integral philosophy and, um, you know, whatever interfaith conversations that at that point was anathema to absolute heresy. So <laughs> slippery slope, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. So at one point you arrived, it's what sounds like uh, something that, that looked like Mennonite, some, uh, yeah, is that right? I, I don't know if I'm labeling it right. I, I don't have all my denominations straight, but yeah, I've, as I basically, I, I found myself at a place where I was disillusioned with, with what I felt like was a shallow experience of Christianity. And I believed in the beauty and the history uh, and the wealth of Christian experience that was global and certainly through time. But I felt like my own tradition was a little thin. I knew, first of all, chronologically, it's like the new kid on the block for sure. (laughs) And so I started reaching backwards into some of the more ancient traditions. And I was reading through the lectionary and doing my best to not tell the evangelicals what I was doing, but preaching through the lectionary a little bit. (laughs) Because they, you know, they're not used to that stuff. And then, you know, looking into Catholicism, I thought I might be Catholic or, or Greek Orthodox. I was visiting as many churches as I could on the sly. Whenever, whenever I would have someone else teaching, I would be visiting as many kinds of churches as I could, looking for something that was resonant, you know, in my, what I would call soul that just told me, this is true. This is it. This is the experience I'm looking for. Cause I was, I was tired of being told to memorize and teach other people's ancient experiences of God. I wanted to know God. I wanted to taste and feel and make love to whatever God is. And I wasn't feeling it in my tradition and Judaism and Greek Orthodox, as I said, and eventually what started to resonate for me was, as you say, Mennonite or maybe a little bit broader categories, Anabaptist uh, theology, which one of the, you know, there's, you can say a lot of things about it, but one of the things that was most attractive was the focus on Jesus uh, the focus on basically interpreting the rest of the Bible through the red letters instead of interpreting the whole Bible and then saying, okay, now what do we do with the words of Jesus or what I felt like was happening a lot in Protestantism, which is let's, in, let's interpret Jesus through Paul. Um, that all seemed out of order to me. I'm like, this is, I think everything should go through Jesus. So, uh, Anabaptists are great at that. And then the emphasis on nonviolence. Yeah. I was kind of been fed up with the nationalist, Jesus as the American flag wearing cage fighter uh, <laughs> stuff that was just so disgusting and detestable to me. Yeah. So, I, so in fact, we got really involved with a, with a, a Anabaptist denomination specifically in the Northeastern part of Canada and started getting in talks about maybe even merging churches at that point as a man, I really respect who's a wonderful teacher named Bruxy Cavey up there. We became friends and that was a really important part of the journey for me, but ultimately it it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the destination. You know, I kept, I kept deconstructing from there. Yeah. 
It's interesting. A lot of what you're saying resonates with my journey over the last 20 years. Uh, one is one real central truth that seems to be in contrast with a lot of the American evangelical movement is the fact that Christ's path to victory was through the cross. <laughs> Correct. That's a pretty profound central truth. It wasn't through the sword or the Roman army. It was through the cross. Yeah. It's like an upside down America victory. Like losers. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but he, so uh, another, uh, this will make sense in, in light of what we were talking about before, some of, one of my other strong influences. I read a collection of essays by John Howard Yoder, who you're probably familiar yeah. with his work. Sure. And one in particular that, that really resonated was, I, I think he was talking about what he was saying was that it's a miracle that Jews exist, that, that religiously, well, as a people through all of history, Jews have always been a minority ever since the uh, diaspora, Jews have always been an identifiable minority and not one until fairly recent history with the state of Israel that had any sort of weaponry. Like there, there were always, there was always a larger nation um, with a lot better weapons, a lot more riches. There's no, there's no reason logically that the Jews should, should still be in existence. They should have been wiped out by the Babylonians, by the Romans, by the, you know, Persians, by every huge, you know, army and empire. And yet they still exist. And hmm. he, he, you know, in Yoder's essay, he was talking about the miracle of Christ's, of Jesus's victory was similarly through the cross. So what are the things that led to uh, the Jews' uh, persistence in existence? It wasn't through the sword, you know, it was through the law, it was through community, it was through these things, uh, through, you know, uh, principles, integrity, uh, documented in Torah and acted out in, in daily practice. Uh, mm -hmm. So these things are more powerful than the sword. What, what's, what's interesting to me about the narrative you just shared, Corey, is that I'm the only Jew on this panel or the only religious Jew on this panel. You're still Jewish. We yeah. won't let you go. Um, and by the way, hit the rabbi when I go to Chabad and visit with my dad or at a bas mitzvah, rabbi, he'll have me late fill in. He ha he always has me do a, a, a Leah and Aliyah with the Torah. Like, so according to the rabbi at Chabad, I'm still, and he knows my deal, but he's, you know, I'm still Jewish. And you are Jewish. Aliyah. And I know. you were at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given in the whole nine yards. Yeah. Um, see, my answer to your question would be because it's part of God's plan. That's what it means to be the chosen people. Um, what's interesting is that you are talking about all these secular reasons for our existence and yet you're an evangelical Christian. You're supposed to, the first thing you're supposed to say is it's God's plan. I was talking about Yoder's essay, dad. You did it. If you asked me the question, I remember I was at your shul on a Friday night and uh, the rabbi, well, I don't know if she was a rabbi, but she asked a question and the answer was because of God, he, you know, because, and nobody answered the question. And, and she said, uh, I, and, and I finally answered. And she said, did you just say that to make me happy? I said, no, I didn't say that to make you happy. I said that because that's the answer. The answer is God because of God. Yeah, you know, that, that was, that, that wasn't Chabad. That was a, no, um, it wasn't Chabad. It was the shul. It was the little, yeah. Uh, it, anyway, sorry. My dad and I are having a whole conversation. It's nice of you to be here, Ryan. <laughs> You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> uh, so, 
Okay, so 2010, what were some of the mileposts for you along the way to, and we'll talk a lot more about where you're at now, but what what were some of those, what were some of those mile markers for you? Yeah, one powerful one was my grandfather passing away. My mother's father, uh, Sherman Nordquist, was one of the greatest men I've ever known. He was a gentle, kind man who loved people and the earth. He was an elementary school teacher. Uh, he taught me everything I know about nature and my love for the outdoors and for creation. Um, and when he passed away, it was 2014. And at this point, I had deconstructed to the place where I was worried that I was just going to be an atheist. And I, I didn't want to, like, I wasn't trying to tear anything apart. I was trying to find the solid ground underneath so that I could build something worth giving my life to. Um, and when I got to the bottom and basically there was nothing left, it was sad for me. I wasn't doing this as a rebellious, uh, iconoclast. So that's, that's where I was at that mind space in 2014. And when I went to go spread his ashes in the mountains of Oregon with my family, I looked at that little cup of ashes and I thought to myself, the world needs more Sherman Nordquists, but he's nothing like what I'm trying to produce at my church. He doesn't attend church regularly. He wasn't a leader of a small group. Um, You know, he hadn't been through any of the classes on all the essential beliefs of Christian faith. And yet, as I looked at his life and I looked at my own life, I, I could see someone who's had richly given themselves in service to love and um, had walked softly on the earth and who was faithful to his wife and uh, left behind uh, five kids who knew beyond a shadow of, of a doubt that they were deeply loved. And it would like hit me like a ton of bricks. I looked into that cup and I was like, I know for a fact, my grandfather would say it went really fast. And here I am at the top of the ladder of, you know, I got book deals in my email inbox at least once a month. And I got this big church and everybody wants to hear me teach and to get mad at me when I don't teach every Sunday. And yet I'm lost. I don't know what to believe. And everything I'm giving my life to is not producing more Sherman Nordquists. And that was just like a reeling moment because I'd already lost what I would have called my faith. And now I was realizing that what I was giving all of my life energy to. And it was a lot. I worked hard. I was in a 60, 80 hour work week kind of person. Even when the church was large, I would, I would set up and tear down along with my team. Like I never had a, like a cool green room or a ivory tower. I didn't leave early from my cool parking spot. Like I always worked alongside the lowest paid employee on my staff. Like, so I was putting in some time. So to realize at that point, like, I don't even believe in what I'm doing anymore was a big turning point for sure. Yeah. I, I can't say I had a, exactly the same experience, but there, there are similarities. I, I ran a, um, a ministry. It was like a theater ministry. We, uh, in fact, we used our, our catchphrase was very similar to one that, uh, RZIM used for a long time, engaging today's culture and conversations that count. Um, we were doing theater and short film and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of it was the, um, you know, we would do the classics. We do Shakespeare and Chekhov and uh, Oscar Wilde plays just to 
put ourselves out and uh, I'm in Southern California. So like in West Hollywood and just getting like, why are a bunch of Bible thumping Christians doing checkoff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I got to a certain point where I just couldn't do it anymore because there were that particular church. There, there were some more than secondary beliefs of the church that I didn't buy into that I could sort of reconcile. Like they were young earth creation was a big deal to them. And, uh, <laughs> To me, it just it just wasn't important. I I wasn't going to die on that hill or not die on that hill. It just like I was like, ah, whatevs, you know. Yeah. Um, but the the one uh, it started getting real because it was more. There's a certain flavor of evangelicalism where you got to preach the gospel. It's kind of like you, you know whatever you do, you, you got to make sure that you're you're selling you're selling the good work, the good news kind of like a crack dealer in a way, like an evangelical, like we got cocaine, we got good news, we got hats, whatever it might be. It's just like, you got to sell that thing. You got to convince a bunch of people to say a magic prayer so they can go to the magic place. You know what I mean? Yep. And I just didn't Absolutely. buy it anymore. I just, I just, I didn't, mm -hmm. that, that wasn't, that was frankly, it just wasn't was what I was reading in scripture. You know, Yeah. what I was reading in scripture was more like, yeah, I believe there's a creator God. I believe that, you know, chapter three in Genesis, something went wrong with the whole deal, you know, and the whole rest of the Bible to my dad's point is like, you know, God, God had these people descended from Abraham uh, to be, to, to uh, be a part of his redemption project. He's going about redeeming his creation. Right. And through the people of Israel, the chosen people, people, and then through the people that were um, then in, in the, the new books, uh, the people around the person of Jesus. Right. And, and I get to be a part of that redemption project. But that's very different than um, we'll look at these four verses in this one book. And that's what we call the Romans road. And then if you do that, really believe it um, and say it, then you get you get a, a pass to the to our club, you know, in yeah. the sky. Or so assembly thinking, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. I usually do a lot more question asking, but there, there's something about... Uh, you're you're drawing a lot out of me, Dad. You look <laughs> like you had something to say at, at a certain point. Uh, ironically, I didn't. Um, naturally, <laughs> I have 15 reactions to everything you just said. <laughs> what I what I find interesting um, is I don't know what spreading the gospel means. I read the gospels about four times, and um, if I was spreading the gospel, if let's say let's say the gospels were, and they are actually, I mean. The Gospels uh, 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 is Jewish literature. So when when Christians say spreading the gospel, or at least three of the four Gospels are written by Jews, right? Uh, I, I'm not, I, they, they mean something much different than what I mean, you know, when I say I'm going to spread the word of Judaism as reflected in the Hebrew Bible. They're talking about selling the fact that Jesus is God and the Messiah, and this is what's going to happen, as opposed to teaching, well, Jesus said, you know, to be, to love your fellow man as you love yourself. That's it right there, you guys, because the, <laughs> I, I hated that. For instance, I just got to harp on this because the, all the talk about like, you got to preach the gospel. I can't tell you how many conferences I went to 
where at least one of the pastors gets up and just screams at all the other pastors that they're not preaching the gospel enough. And I couldn't agree with you more there because if we're going to just read the, what we call the gospels, these are the stories of the life and teaching of Jesus. And if you're going to try to lift out what the central theme is, I can't imagine that you wouldn't land on the Beatitudes. So if we're supposed to preach the gospel, then we should be preaching the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are, right? Like, let's preach the good news, which is a, that's Beatitudes is liberating good news because it's totally counterintuitive, um, very Jewish, paradoxical language that Jesus is teaching there. Like, that seems, okay, let's teach that. But what they're saying when they say teach the gospel is this formulaic, uh, epistemological gymnastics theology that you have to, as you said, believe Jesus is God. There's an inherent threat that if you don't believe something or do these things, you'll be sent to hell. So mitigate the inherent threat. It's just basically like lawyer speak for evangelicals. And that's where you lose modern people, I think, because you have to buy into a magical blood sacrifice as the central thing to worry about in Christianity. You have to buy into that and Unless you grew up in that worldview, it's just for modern people, that's just such a long stretch that somewhere somebody killed someone and that you, if you believe it, it's magically gets you to a magic place. It's, it's hard to buy into, but I, I, I really appreciate you bringing up that if we're going to talk about the gospel, we've so missed it. If we're not going to actually read the gospels to understand what the gospel is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that you were, Beatitudes make sense. I was thinking you were going to go with the central, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. As shema. Yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. the Shema. That's the thing. That's older. Hey, Dad, I was going to ask you, I know you've heard me tell the story about the first time I read through the New Testament letters and books, um, that I got to chapter five of Matthew. I didn't recognize it as the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't know what that was, but what I did recognize it as having grown up in an Orthodox synagogue was uh, this Jesus character giving what I recognized as a um, Devar Torah. When you read the, did you read it that way? Absolutely. It, it reminded me of the Kaddish, which is what we say. I don't know, like I must say it 25 times a day because I, I pray three times a day. And you know, where you say the Kaddish in a number of formats, and basically it's the sermon on, I mean, Jesus plagiarized the sermon, didn't plagiarize it, <laughs> it was on. Jewish. You know, it was, the, sure it was basically the, the Kaddish. Um, as, as, with, as Pete Seeger would say, hey, they might be stealing from me, but I steal from everybody. Plagiarism <laughs> is basic to all culture. Plagiarism, it's all plagiarized. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, are you a Pete Seeger fan by any chance? Are you talking nah, to me? <laughs> I know you are, Dad. We've been to uh, we 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 went to dozens, Constance. if not hundreds, of shows. Uh, may he rest in peace. But yeah, if you ever get a chance to uh, listen to his music, or especially his the recordings of his live, you didn't let him answer, Corey. What? No, he you didn't. You didn't let Ryan answer. No, no I did. I did not. I haven't really listened to him much. I know who he is, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, now he preaches the gospel, the, the 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 kind of gospel I you know I could definitely buy into, even in my <laughs> cynical old age. What are you doing? What do you believe now? What are you doing now? You've really yeah, come... identify. Yeah. I don't know that I, well, for me, I don't care. Um, <laughs> so it, it ends up being like, what's helpful for the person that I'm working with um, or interacting with or meeting? What do I believe? I mean, I believe that this is real. 
that this experience we're having is real and that it matters. And that ultimately love is the purpose for all of this. I mean, if I really want to condense it, cancer sort of whittled me down to nothing to where I realized like, look, I don't know. I don't have the answers, but I'm grateful to be alive. Life is a gift is probably the first thing. And the second thing is love is the point. I mean, and that's, I got that tattooed on my hands. Life is a gift. Love is the point. That's what I believe. I believe that gratitude for this experience, which is a beautiful. And then the response to that, the natural response to receiving this life is love is to pour yourself out in service to love. So, but other than that, I just don't really care too much about the things I used to get stuck in with people, these arguments about truth claims that can neither be proven true nor false. Um, I'm more interested in how does your current beliefs help you manifest a life of greater meaning, um, service, joy, inner peace. Like I'm, I'm interested in the pragmatic, what Jesus would call fruit of your beliefs. So whatever you're believing, I'm not too worried about if it's a unicorn spaghetti monster in the sky, whatever, enjoy it. But does it make you kinder? Are you slower to anger? How do you use your resources? Like I'm, that's, that's what I'm more interested in. So you're not a pastor anymore. Correct. And you're not affiliated with the church anymore. Nope. Do you, um, do you attend like, uh, I, I don't know if there are like gatherings or services or anything like that, or so you're just doing your thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do group meditation sometimes here in our town. We have a group of meditators who meet in the morning and meditate, but it's not, there's no sectarian identification, you know, identifier, you know, there are Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and Jews and new age eclectic, you know, whatever's we're not worried about that. We're there to, you know, touch the still point or the Buddha nature or Christ consciousness. Um, so that we can actually live from that place of loving awareness in our daily lives. You know, everyone goes off to work after that. And so the point would be to, you know, get into greater relationship or communion with the absolute, whatever you name it, so that we can live in exchange of love with the people around us and find ways to serve and give ourselves away. Do you think it's fool's errand to try to name it, to try to define it, or is it best to keep it ineffable? I think that uh, I, I, I'm sure it's a Jewish parable where these these two guys are arguing back and forth, back and forth. And, and yeah, I can't even remember how it ends, but it's something along the lines of God shows up and is like getting frustrated that they're trying to nail it down. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a fool's error. I think it's an essential part of being human, like to reach out and try to define the experience we're having. I think when it goes negative is when we try to use our definitions as weapons against one another. Like the point is, is, you know, love everyone and convert yourself. But fundamentalism says convert everyone because you love yourself so much or your own ideas so much. I think, I think you're leaving a piece out. Yeah. Great. What is it? Um, in my journey, I, I was not religious at all until about, mm-hmm. 15, 20 years ago, and I become more and more and more observant and more religious. And um, the question is, you know, why should I keep kosher? I mean, it's a very mundane thing. And the answer is because God says so, period, the end. 
So now, how does that relate to my experience of God in my life? Okay. I have an issue with this, you know, kumbaya. All we have to do is get in touch with our uh, divine spirit in our heart and then go out into the world and spread love and do all that stuff. Um, my life experience tells me that most people need a discipline and they need to be reminded of that constantly, that they're, that I'm responsible to an authority larger than myself. Okay. And once you give up the discipline, you give up that constant reminder that I'm subservient to a larger set of values than something that I can concoct up in my own mind. Because people are very good at rationalizing doing terrible things for the right reasons. That's the thing that I have to fight against. And yeah. not eating ham is part of that exercise. Every time I eat, I'm subjecting myself to a discipline, not because it's going to keep me healthy, not because it's uh, good for me in a selfish way, not because it's going to get me to heaven, simply because I'm acknowledging that there's something bigger than me that I'm subservient to. And I love that. I'm just saying when it gets negative is when you need me to do that. Mm. That makes I love, sense. I love that. that like makes if sense. That's cultivating in you, humility, uh, the ability to see yourself in a larger frame of reality. Absolutely. To me, we don't, I don't think Nate, uh, religion is necessary for that. Nature shows us that nature proves to us every day that we are not in control and that everything that we are is in relationship to a larger reality. I don't think you need God or any religious language or rules for that. Like if you are out of right relationship to the broader narrative of an ecological system, you will pay the price of being out of relationship to reality. You cannot keep polluting the water and live. So the, the laws of reality are, I think even more, uh, there's more vengeance for violating the laws of nature than there is for any gods. <laughs> the place where you're wrong is that you don't need it, but most people do. Most oh, people, yeah. you know, most people do need that. Dis I need that discipline to remind me every moment I'm alive um, that I'm, I'm subservient to something bigger than me. Um, and, and another big difference, you know, if that, that Corey didn't point out earlier between Jews and Christians is except for a very brief period in our history, we've never been a proselytizing religion. In fact, we right. discourage people Art. from converting. Exactly. You, you, you want to be a Jew? We're going to cut a piece of your penis off. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I love about it. It's actually a real initiation, which we've lost. I mean, most cultures had actual hardcore initiations before you get in. Now it's like who can build the biggest group of, you know, fair weather tourist interest people. And, and that's one thing I deeply respect about Judaism. I will agree that there are definitely stages of consciousness that require more control. We know this is true in child development, just the way human beings grow up requires more structure at the lower levels. But the idea that everyone gets, that just gets too universal for me. It's just not true. There are plenty of people who don't need a reason for love. Like I don't, I don't, 
I think there could be a being that's conscious, that's aware and created all of this. And I don't know. If love means caring more about the welfare of someone else than yourself, then maybe you do need a God to believe that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't, but I, and also I don't, I don't want to love your neighbor more than you love yourself. I think that that ends up being a journey towards self-abandonment. I think the key is to love yourself enough so that you can love others because any self-loathing will come out in your, in your relating to others. I love my wife and my kids and grandkids more than I love myself. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, sure. Well, I'm, I, like I said, the beauty of having left religion behind is that I don't need someone to see the world the same way as me. What I hope for is that whatever practices, whether they be kosher or praying to Mecca, that they actually result in a deep sense of feeling alive, feeling an ability to trust life. Some people call that faith, but that's that word's fine for me. To me, it's a, it's a feeling in the body of, look, whatever happens, no matter how awful it feels in the moment, I trust that the large uh, sort of end point of where we're being pulled, where the future is drawing us all is, is to be trusted and is good. And so however you get there, I'm all for it. <laughs> Do you believe that there is something in every human being, perhaps in every creature that is like a, a compass that points north, that um, it, the thing in, in human beings being something that draws us towards what is good and, and, or what you might call love or yeah. it do, is, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I uh, do. You do. But yeah, so the short is yes. Did you want to dig into that? Yeah. You know, I'm reading this book right now. A friend of mine wrote a memoir. She's about 60, maybe 61. Um, and she wrote a memoir. I, I never knew this about her. Her grand, She grew up uh, from the age of about four until she was 14 on her grandfather's farm in central slash Western Pennsylvania. And her grandfather serially uh, sexually abused her. It's actually a very poignant, powerful, beautiful book. Um, because uh, it's not about that per se, so much as it is about her overcoming that and that not um, defining her. But I bring mm -hmm. it up because the character of, of Pap, the grandfather in this book, Blind Pony, got me really thinking about the human condition mm. and that I, I, I tend to agree with your assessment that there is something innate in us that points us toward the good and even draws us toward the good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and even this character, Pap, did things to show that he intellectually knew what was good. Like he'd pray before meals because he knew that that looked like what he was doing was good. Um, he he ha told his granddaughter, now we need to keep this quiet and did things to make sure that she kept it quiet because he understood that what he was doing was bad. So intellectually, yeah. he knew good things and he knew bad things and he tried to put on that appearance. But there was something missing in him that allowed him to breach that gap between something that we know to be vilely, basely bad, evil, mm -hmm. right? Like, like we just innately know this and, and, and we find, you know, but, but there was something in him that, that was deadened or maybe just didn't exist. You know, I've, I've said only half jokingly that I really don't think Donald Trump is, is human, you know, and, and it's only half joking because like, look, there are certain things that make us uniquely human 
um, if I were to write an actual dissertation to make the empirical proof that he's not really human, um, <laughs> some of the, the chapters would include the fact that if you've ever seen him in a room where music is playing, humans understand and literally resonate with music. There's something that's beautiful about what we're hearing and we move to music, we respond to music, we literally resonate. Watch Donald Trump in a room where music is playing. It doesn't, it doesn't penetrate his, his, you know, his, it doesn't penetrate at all. Um, or, or laughter. Laughter is, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's, you could argue one way or the other that maybe certain animals, especially in mammalian world, um, laugh. Uh, but he, he doesn't laugh the way that we laugh out of joy or laugh uh, because of a joke. The only laughter that you might see is is um, sort of a cruelty, uh, a, 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 an expression of cruelty in some way, shape or form. So I'm only half joking when I say I don't know if he's human, you know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Another tangent, but um, it goes back to the original question. Maybe you want to comment on it a little bit more about so you do think there is something in us like a compass that draws us towards love, towards what we think of as good. Absolutely. I, my sense of, it's easy to get into these, like, especially for me, like I, I'm interested in conversations about consciousness and the nature of reality and philosophy, but it is really easy to get trapped in the cul-de-sac of, you know, words and lose sight of like the real animal experience of being in a body stuck in a dimension of time that only moves in one direction and you know not really knowing for certain besides agreements perhaps we've made with other people's ideas or religious notions about what happens after all this breathing in and breathing out is over so when i really get quiet enough to feel into the experience i think it's really obvious that that love is the engine of the universe at some level, whether you want to call that love allurement or you want to use that romantic version of love, but there's something that is drawing us together. That's something that makes us stare at the beauty of a sunset. Like we have this intrinsic need to connect and to give and to self-sacrifice, to make meaning. And I think that's all wrapped up in whatever we're trying to describe when we use the word God. I still like the word God. I usually try to define it so people know that I'm not talking about some bearded, angry guy in the sky who's judging everything like Santa Claus um, and putting you on lists. But, but the idea, the experience of God, of this transformative future that's pulling us all forward. And, and I know it's been a hard, hard is the wrong word. Can I say shitty on this podcast? It's yeah. been a shitty four years. Yeah. Uh, but when you look at our history over the last, let's really look at human, you know, 200,000 years, we really have come a long way. And we're learning how to live more in line with that compass point that keeps pulling us um, in rapid growth. Uh, you know, um, when you really look at the chart, right, it's, it's really up and to the right with how we're learning how to work with each other. Now, there's been some huge setbacks. Nothing's climbing steadily. We're two steps forward, one step back, certainly. But, and my, maybe it's my naivete or it's the last shred of faith that I won't let go of. Hmm. Hope. Yeah. I hope, I believe that we can do better, that we will do better, that in the end love wins and that love is never wasted. And that without having a bunch of definitions or certitudes, 
I just trust that if I give myself to love, that things will work out. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Even with the paradigm that I have, uh, central to my paradigm, I kind of articulated it before, is that I, I do believe that there is a redemption project underway, a, a much larger one, a, yeah. you know, universal that's underway. Uh, yeah. And so, digging a little bit deeper, um, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named J. Cameron Carter, uh, described it in, in jazz terms, um, you know, when Coltrane was playing with Thelonious Monk, their their virtuosity was really at a peak because they were playing among other virtuosos right yeah but at the same time their their um unique individual expression uh and, and where they brought music as a whole was was never was never more individually uh more fully expressed you know huh. so they had that they had that duality of being in the in the context of other virtu virtuosos playing in the band yeah and, and sort of because of that their individual beauty was heightened at the same time yeah. you know now i'm not saying that i'm a monk or or coltrane in this but i do feel that I, that everyone is so unique and can bring such um beautifully individual unique talents and gifts to the party of if we call it a redemption project yeah, but you're just a yeah. part of it. It's not, you know, I'm not the center of the universe per se, but I get to be a really cool part of this universal project. What a relief, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's not on my shoulders. Yeah, so. absolutely not. So we could relax and do our little part to, you know, every day is going to be 1000 choices to choose the highest good or the selfish uh, choice, you know? Yeah, yeah. The good news is when we screw up the one, we choose selfishness, we'll have another shot soon enough. And we yeah. just always two escalators. There's one going up and one going down. And we sort of live our lives hopping back and forth and making decisions throughout the day that either elevate us in our consciousness or lower us. And I think Jesus said it well, then when, when thine eye be single, your whole body will be full of light. Mm. And when we actually direct all of our energies, physical and spiritual and mental into riding that higher up-leveling escalator that says, you know, choose the highest good in each and every moment. Then there'll just be this lightness of being this, this relaxation of trust and this ability to give ourselves away because selfishness is always pulling us into the fear mode, into the scarcity mode, into the, Oh no, it's all going to fall apart. And I have so much to lose. And I think that's, those are always the choices. You can go into the, the letting go and the giving yourself away and, you know, to use Jesus's words to take up your cross and die to yourself, or you can take the lower escalator and you can, you can close your heart and you can protect your stuff and you can worry about your neighbor and get all into the conspiracy theories and live in that kind of space. And I think we all know that there's two very distinct, different kinds of people that are produced through those ideologies. The, the, the duality that, um, that's interesting to me, and that was dramatized through the Trump years, especially. Um, public life was so awful in America, but personal life in whatever in the various communities that I live in is beautiful, even yep. with friends who I disagree with violently politically. As long as we could leave that political bullshit someplace else. Um, life got better, life got richer, you know, people were more nurturing. Um, I didn't put a yarmulke on until about two or three years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. and it was related to something 
You could say grand- that. Well, oh. uh, say what? It, why uh, I put the Omicron? Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my grandchildren had a drug problem and, uh, and it, uh, a dependency issue, an addictive issue, and made a choice to become sober and clean. And I said, I'm going to choose to put a yarmulke on now. I've been playing with being an Orthodox Jew and observant Jew for 10, 12, 13 years now. Now I'm going to make it real to be in this journey with you. This is, you know, mm-hmm. my symbolic way of walking your walk with you. Beautiful. Jackie Boy uh, is 26 months sober. Uh, last hey, Friday, hey. I think it was. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. But my experience of wearing yarmulke all of a sudden, um, I'd say 90% of the reactions I get from the Gentile world are validating, uh, beautiful, loving, mm-hmm. um, you know, real empathy and respect. And about 10% is really horrible and ugly. And I think, you know, that's the equation that we need to use in terms of separating out the public stuff from our real lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Face to face, better barometer than what they put on the television. But not even on the television. I mean, Trump is a real person. These people are real people. Um, but our our own universes, we have control over. That's right. Yeah. Uh this has been a much more philosophical conversation than I, I anticipated. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one of the more high profile events was when the time magazine came out, I think in 2015, um, what what kind of, you were, you were such a high profile figure in the evangelical movement or the mega church movement, however you might want to define it. What kind of backlash did you have to face at that point? I mean, you know, your standard uh, hate mail and I got to actually did get some death threats and, um, you know, just basically a year of conversations with people in the in the community who wanted to argue me back into whatever they needed me to think. Um, and of course, that included like the loss of some friendships and basically all the people who had been mentoring me from the evangelical world just sort of. um just they stopped calling you know Uh, those relationships were over they couldn't be associated with me so yeah i mean it was sometimes i look back and like wow that was really hard season which it was you know i had thousands of people abandon me publicly some people go to therapy for abandonment issues from a single person who abandoned them and (laughs) i had thousands of people who said they loved me on you know friday and hated me on monday and all left me and all wanted to make comments about it on the internet on their way out so at, on one level, it was really painful. On another level, you know, put that 300 years ago, I'd have been burned at the stake. So I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> <laughs> in re- yeah, in relation, I guess it's... Uh, you, you, you know, boo-hoo, out. people don't like me. You know, this is what my gay friends have been dealing with their whole lives. So, and I was being rejected for what I thought theologically. And my friends have been being rejected for who they are um, their whole lives. So in some ways, it was a, it was a gift to in a tiny way, carry a burden in a way that I could identify with my friends who, and in, in, in just to very sm- small way, just to taste what it felt like and what they had been living through their whole lives. And I think that was good for me. I mean, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual male, a white male 
and in America, I don't really know what it feels like to be on the bottom of any of these social uh, rankings. And so it was, I think it was good for me. It, w- it wasn't easy, but it was good for me. Have you thought at all sociologically about why that is, you know, meaning why is the L- LGBTQ, why is that such a flashpoint of controversy within the church? I mean, there, if you really read your Bible, the Bible is about a lot of other stuff than something yeah. like wh- who we go to bed with, you know, like, yeah. uh, do you know yeah. why, why it's such a flashpoint for us? Yeah. I mean, it's human nature to avoid the obvious stuff when it's hard, when it requires more of us. So we like to fixate on the things that are not our problem. So we can feel like we're on a journey towards righteousness when really we're avoiding the very obvious things. Like for instance, I mean, I've read the Bible all the way through a few times myself. (laughs) I did it twice in one year. In fact, now nobody's going to read that thing, close it. And at the end say, well, it's about not being gay, you know, <laughs> they're going to, if anything, I wonder if they're not going to come to the conclusion that the way you treat the poor really fucking matters. Yeah. Right. But Americans, what, what, what it's maybe one thing Americans, maybe especially socioeconomically upper middle-class Americans and the average evangelical megachurch was the one thing they don't want to hear about every Sunday. Right. Some social justice in relation to economic systemic injustice. So you pick on the things that are easy to throw over the fence. And um, historically, that certainly included women. Um, So we're all worried about what what clothing women wear or, you know, whatever they're doing to sexually tempt men. And then in some way, I think that's definitely related to the way that the church and really our broader culture has marginalized and oppressed uh, maybe something that would be like a more effeminate expression of being a man. So I think those two things are tied and sex is something that's been controlled by every institution and government ever since we started civilization. (laughs) It's you can't really have people doing whatever they want. Like, right. You need, tax units and even the way that we stole land from native americans was directly related to the ways that we partner in white western culture we're like okay you can have this much land if you are married with kids and so it's baked in to the structure of the way we govern the land and tax people that the way you express yourself or partner sexually um, be heteronormative so there's a lot of reasons why it's such a deal, but, um, you know, being afraid of sex and having runaway sexual scandal. I mean, we were just talking about it before we came on and how many times do we need to see evangelicals in when high profile getting caught for the very things they rail against, like whatever's in the shadow is going to be what you're coming out against publicly. And so it's no surprise to me that evangelicals who have all this righteousness about who's wrong in their sexual expression, that ends up being the group that's being exposed for having issues. I mean, the number one porn consumption in America is in the South, you know, the number one teen pregnancy in the South, right? These are the places where we teach abstinent only sex education. Yeah. They're all connected. This is all connected and it's willingness. This is the problem with Christianity from the perspective of depth psychology 
And that is that we don't deal with the shadow because we have a magical sacrifice that supposedly takes care of it. So we don't have to actually integrate the shadow. Jesus paid it all, you know? And so we don't do any work with the actual shadow that's here because we have a belief in a magical transaction that makes that something we don't have to deal with. And it's just, it's just not true. That's yeah. why we have all these people acting out of the shadow and then going, I don't know what happened. I've only been going to massage parlors for 50 years straight. <laughs> yeah. You know? Come on, man. Yeah. Dad, you look like you had something to say. Uh, I just, um, when I, when I read about, these kinds of sexual scandals in the fundamentalist church. Yeah. My, my reaction is uh, kind of paradoxical. I say to myself, you know, these are human beings. Well, you know, why should we be surprised that there's the same level of corruption, uh, sexual exploitation and hypocrisy among evangelicals as in the rest of the population. I mean, we shouldn't be harder on these people than we are on others who do the same things. This is what human beings are like. This is part of being a human being. That's why discipline is important. Yeah, I, 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 I think part of the problem is that there's a scandal at all, that we have this idea that, you know, we know the ways people should express their sexuality. I mean, obviously we don't want people um, in non-consensual oppressive relationships with where the power dynamic is screwed up, for instance, child abuse or whatever. But the, the, the idea that we have some rules about like who you're allowed to love or how many people you're allowed to love is part of the issue. Like these are just, in my view, made up concepts that are torturing people. And it's like, just let people do what they want. The issue is when people who are preaching, you can't do this yeah. is generally the people who are about to be exposed for doing exactly that. Getting caught with your pants down quite literally. <laughs> exactly. Well, I feel like we could talk here for another couple hours. I know I got a lot rattling around in my brain. <laughs> um, but uh, let me just ask a few more questions here to wrap sure. up. One is, uh, will anything come to mind that we forgot to ask you that we should be asking you? <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm not in charge. Whatever you think is more interesting or helpful for you guys. Okay. Another question is, do you have any questions for us? Well, yeah. How about if, if you want, I could ask a question about your, you and your dad's relationship and how you've navigated uh, mutual respect and admiration and love while crossing religious boundaries. <laughs> I'll answer that because Corey's going to get it all wrong. Well, I do want to say before you start that uh, the look on his face right now in the in the dictionary, the Yiddish dictionary, there's a word nachas. And okay. that picture is next to the word nachas. <laughs> okay. when, 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 when Corey announced he was a Christian, I grew up in a world where if I dated a non-Jewish girl, some relatives would have sat shiva. They would have pretended I was dead. Oh my, is that real? Is it for real? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. I'm a first, I'm a first generation American. My mom was born in the shtetl in Russia okay. and my whole extended family came over in 1921. Wow. Um, I was also raised with the, um, it's a, sorry. I was going to say it's almost exactly the hundred year anniversary of of their arrival. In March, at Ellis March will be the hundred year anniversary that they came uh -huh. to America through Ellis uh -huh. Island. Um, I was also raised 
explicitly, not even implicitly, but explicitly that my mission in life was to guarantee the survival of Judaism by burying a Jewish girl, having Jewish children, and making sure that my children married other Jews and had Jewish children. That was my mission in life. So when Corey announced that he was a Christian, I had to make a very profound decision. What's more important to me, God or my child? My relationship with God or my relationship with my child? At least the God that I was taught to believe in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it didn't take me very long to figure out that there was nothing that was going to break. There was nothing either of my kids could do that would cause me to end my relationship with my kids and to stop loving them. So mm-hmm. once I came to that realization, everything else flowed from that, from my point of view, I had mm-hmm. to start listening. I had to start accepting. I had to start learning to be a father who accepted the fact that even though my kid is wrong, I love him and he's going to go on his journey and I'm going to stop criticizing it. It's not my job to tell him what to do and what not to do. My job is just to love him and support him. That's my job. Mm. And everything's sort of, I mean, from my end, everything flowed from there. Yeah. As long as I can keep telling him that he's wrong all the time. (laughs) I love that. I appreciate that so much because, you know, obviously my father and I, um, are in different worlds now and he's still an evangelical minister and we always had a wonderful relationship. And, and so it's nice to hear when people are able to navigate the same, you know, um, boundary line crossing that we did and, and make it out the other side because we do have a good relationship. It's definitely different. You know, we used to share the faith and we were both ministers together, but it's nice to hear when, uh, you know, how people navigate that well. And in some ways it's a defense of, of, uh, the paradigm that I'm offering, because at the end of the day, when you decide, you know, I'm going to choose my own son over this particular religious orientation, that's exactly what I'm, what I try to encourage people to consider. And that is that you already have the compass within you, you know, what love looks like and feels like. And sometimes that means betraying your you know, religious ideals, at least that you were raised with to choose an ethic that is just undeniable within you. And even though that's not structure as much as sometimes we talk about people needing that, there's just something within us that knows, like, I know this is what's right. And, and love, even though it can be hippy dippy and a kumbaya sometimes, it really is the answer. Yeah. And listen, don't get me wrong. There is a lot of hard work and pain. I believe it. And turmoil. Those first three years, especially were those were hard years. But, you know, we both put in the time, literally, like we both put in hundreds of hours of time, you know, crafting emails back and forth, you know, many whiskeys and we were still smoking cigars at that time. Um, over around a fire pit, you know, but yeah, we put in the time and well, it shows. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's, um, you know, it's not just a personal experience. I think there's a lot of contentiousness, uh, in the world right now. I think a lot of, we were talking about this before, a lot of the public discourse is really defined by contentiousness. 
uh-huh. by immovable, you know, two immovable objects just kind of throwing rocks at each other from across a divide. Uh, I just don't think that's doing anything good. I don't think yeah. anybody's scoring any imaginary points. Uh, I don't think anything productive is happening. I think destructive things are happening. So to the degree that a couple of people can get into that divide, can get into that chasm, um, and and it might look ugly, you know, it it might it might look messy, uh, you know, but I think it's good work. I think it's it's worthy work, and it's needed to counterbalance those rock throwers, you know. I agree. Thanks for being an example of that, guys. Yeah, <laughs> Ryan. Before we go, how can we find you, and how can we find some of the work that you're doing, and you know. Yeah, I'm just, I have a website, ryantmeeks.com. Uh, T is in Tom in the middle there. That's my middle initial for Thomas. And then I'm on Instagram, ryantmeeks. But yeah, that's where you can find me. I do spiritual direction and psychedelic integration, relationship coaching, and rewilding wilderness guiding stuff with my friend Kent. Um, yeah, and that's all on there. ryantmeeks.com. Ryan T. Meeks, it was a really cool thing to hang out with you today. My mind, like I said, is swimming. I feel like I got a lot more work to do now and a lot more thinking Uh-oh. to do. Might have to revisit with you, go on one of those uh, journey. Those, can I, If there's a hotel nearby, a five-star hotel nearby, any of these uh, nature, no, huh? <laughs> no showers for days. Oh, geez. Okay. All right. Anyway, it was really cool to hang out with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, guys. It was really fun for me. Thanks, Pops. Have a good day. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.